Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Godsey, and it is December 23rd. So we're just a couple days after the winter solstice of 2023, and we are on the slide into 2024. We've got, yeah, just about seven, eight days left of this year. And I'm finally sitting down because I have an hour that's loose to record this podcast. I'm really excited that my daughter is home from college for the holidays, and she has agreed to do another episode with me probably in January, early January, which will be the fifth year anniversary of this podcast. I can't believe that I started this podcast in January of 2019 before the pandemic, and here we are almost in January 2024. So I wanted to give a huge shout out to Alexandria Shainer, who wrote a really lovely and kind review of the podcast for Z Network. Uh, I will put a link to that review in the show notes. But it was such a kind thing to read, and I shared it with my daughter, and my daughter was really pleased that she got mentioned. And you know, one of the things that's really interesting is that I actually have not myself personally gone back and re-listened to all of the episodes that I've recorded since January of 2019. And it's, you know, it's just basically lack of time. Um, It's something I really should do because in reading this review on Zenet, I realized that, you know, it, it, it might actually kind of be a little window onto the past five years. But anyway, I uh, am really pleased that, you know, we've made it through this year. It's been a hell of a year. It's been a hell of a couple years, actually. There are a few publishing-related bright spots. My Spanish translation of Everyday Utopia will be out in March of 2024, with Capitan Swing. Everyday Utopia was also chosen as one of the notable books of 2023 by Behavioral Scientist. I can put a link to that as well in the show notes. And, you know, the book is just sort of making its way out in into the world. I'm really grateful to everybody who wrote in after the last episode for the free books. They went pretty quick. I'm really glad that that I was able to, you know, get them out there into the world. And I'm actually thinking that given that this is the end of what has just been a really difficult year, the times sometimes feel really rather dark. And I am going to link uh, in this episode to a full PDF of the final chapter of Everyday Utopia. For those of you who may not have a copy of the book, the final chapter of the book is really about hope. And it's about the importance of cultivating the cognitive capacity for hope, especially in really dark times, like those times that we happen to be living in right now. And, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Some of the German reviewers have really disliked this chapter of my book. I think it's just too hopeful, maybe, or they, they see it as a kind of weird American obsession with positive psychology. I'm not really sure. But But there's an argument in this about how rearranging our personal lives and really thinking about the ways in which we treat people 
and relate to our colleagues and comrades and friends and family members and neighbors, people in our community. Like that is this really important way of instantiating hope into the world. And this is not optimism. And I I want to make it very clear that I'm not just talking about optimism. It's not just blind faith that everything's going to work out in the end. Hope is actually a political act. I believe it's a radical political act. I also believe it's a muscle that we can strengthen. And uh, I think the Germans just think that's pablum, but I still, I'm still going to stick with it. I think that there's a really valuable lesson in thinking about hope as a radical act, thinking about hoping in dark times as not giving into despair and not giving into the apathy that can immobilize us from actually realizing true political change in the world. So I will post a full PDF of that final chapter of Everyday Utopia. It's called the Star Trek Game Plan. Those of you who are Trekkies out there will appreciate this, I think. It's really about sort of the psychology of hope and the philosophy of hope. And it's a it's a kind of a wrap-up of the book, but it really does, I think, in some ways stand alone. So if you're interested in reading something a little hopeful to mark the end of a year that I think has made a lot of us feel really hopeless given all the negative things that are happening around the world today, then please check out that link. You know, feel free to share it around. I just, it's my, you know, my little attempt to bring people a little bit of joy and positivity at this dark time, dark and cold time of the year. So now I'm going to read part two of the essay, The Labor of Women in the Evolution of the Economy. This is the second part of the essay that I started reading over a month ago now. And it's this essay where I really believe Colin Tai outlines this sort of plan that eventually becomes the kind of standard playbook for socialist women's activism. So as you will recall from the last episode, Colin Tai was basically trying to catalog all of the things that the Soviet Union at this point had done in order to incorporate women into the economy. So I'm um, just going to pick up where I left off. She says, it was at this time that the board, which deals with the protection of motherhood, was set up and began to organize model palaces of motherhood. Since then, we have worked ably and energetically And the cause of the protection of motherhood has flourished and established firm roots. From the early stages of the working woman's pregnancy, she receives the assistance of Soviet power. Consultation centers for pregnant and nursing mothers are now to be found across the length and breadth of Russia. In Tsarist times, only six consultation centers existed. Now we have about 200 such centers and 138 milk kitchens. But of course, the most important task is to relieve the working mother of the unproductive labor involved in ministering to the physical needs of the child. Maternity does not in the least mean that one must oneself change the nappies wash the baby, or even be by the cradle. The social obligation of the mother is above all to give birth to a healthy baby. 
The Labor Republic must therefore provide the pregnant woman with the most favorable possible conditions, and the woman for her part must observe all the rules of hygiene during her pregnancy, remembering that in these months she no longer belongs to herself. She is serving the collective, producing from her own flesh and blood a new unit of labor, a new member of the labor republic. So I just want to stop there. And again, as I always note, obviously, Kalantai here, as she often is, is extremely pronatalist. She sees motherhood as a social obligation. And she's very clear and explicit here about the fact that a woman who has a child is producing for the economy a new laborer, a new worker. Now, this might seem a little awkward or uncomfortable for the listener because it's sort of a baby and a baby is supposed to be, you know, a family and bringing joy and, you know, community or whatever. And she's really, really focusing on the baby as a future laborer, which let's be honest, capitalist countries do too, but they don't want to recognize the baby as a future laborer. They want to think of the baby as a sort of private good because that way they don't have to pay for it. They don't have to pay or support the family in raising this child to adulthood. And I think that the reason in these early texts that Kalantai is so open about the fact that motherhood is about producing future laborers is because that's the way she's going to get her male colleagues in government to agree to fund this radical expansion of kindergartens and creches and public cafeterias and canteens and laundries in order to alleviate some of the burdens of motherhood. Okay, so let's get back to this. The woman's second obligation is to breastfeed her baby. Only when she has done this does the woman have the right to say that she has fulfilled her obligations. The other tasks involved in caring for the younger generation can be carried out by the collective. Of course, the maternal instinct is strong and there is no need to stifle it. But why should this instinct be narrowly limited to the love and care of one's own child? Why not allow this instinct for which the labor republic has valuable potential, the opportunity to develop vigorously and to reach its highest stage, where the woman not only cares for her own children, but has tender affection for all children. Now, I mean, this is, again, an extremely radical sentiment to be expressing in 1921. I mean, she's basically saying like, okay, if women want to care, I mean, there's a little biological essentialism in here. Sure, of course, it's 1921. But imagine how incredible it would be at this moment for somebody in Kolontai's position in government to say, look, women have these caring instincts. Why should we limit them to care only for their own children when we could use those instincts for women to care for the entirety of, you know, the group of children that are in their society? It's a very, very progressive idea. It's very much at the root of this idea that if we complicated our notion of what is family, if we looked beyond the nuclear family, we could build a more loving, caring, contented, and connected society. Okay, back to Kalantai. The slogan advanced by the Labor Republic, quote, 
Be a mother not only to your own child, but to all the children of the workers and peasants, unquote, must show the working woman a new approach to motherhood. There have been instances where a mother, even a communist mother, refuses to breastfeed a baby that is suffering from lack of milk, only because it is not her baby. Is such behavior permissible? Future society, with its communist emotion and understanding, will be as amazed at such egotistic and antisocial acts as we are when we read of the woman in prehistoric society who loved her own child but found the appetite to eat the child of another tribe. Or to take another case, examples of which abound. A mother deprives her baby of milk in order to save herself the bother of caring for it. And can we allow the number of foundlings in Soviet Russia to continue to grow at the present rate? These problems, it is true, derive from the fact that the question of motherhood is being tackled but has not yet been completely solved. In this difficult transition period, there are hundreds of thousands of women who are exhausted by the dual burden of hired labor and maternity. There are not enough creches, children homes, and maternity homes, and the financial provisions do not keep pace with the price rises of goods on the free market. Consequently, working women are afraid of motherhood and abandon their children. The growth in the number of foundlings, however, is also evidence that not all women in the labor republic have yet grasped the fact that motherhood is not a private matter, but a social obligation. And in the text, this part is italicized to highlight it. You who work amongst women will have to discuss this question and explain to working women peasant women and office workers, the obligations of motherhood in the new situation of the labor republic. At the same time, we obviously have to step up the work of developing the system of maternity protection and social upbringing. The easier it becomes for mothers to combine work and maternity, the fewer foundlings there will be. Foundlings here are obviously orphans or kids that have been abandoned on the street. We have already pointed out that maternity does not involve the mother always being with the child or devoting herself entirely to its physical and moral education. The obligation of the mother to her children is to ensure that a healthy and normal atmosphere is provided for their growth and development. In bourgeois society, we always find that it is the children of the well-to-do classes who are healthy and flourishing and never the children of the poor. How do we explain this? Is it because bourgeois mothers devoted themselves entirely to the education of their children? Not at all. Bourgeois mamas were very willing to place their children in the care of hired laborers, nannies, and governesses. Only in poor families do mother themselves bear all the hardships of maternity. The children are with their mothers, but they die like flies. There can be no question of normal upbringing. The mother does not have the time, and so the children are educated on the street. Every mother of the bourgeois class hurries to shift at least part of childcare onto society. She sends the child to a kindergarten, to a school, or to a summer camp. 
The sensible mother knows that social education gives the child something that the most exclusive maternal love cannot give. In the prosperous circles of bourgeois society, where great significance is attached to giving the children a proper education in the bourgeois spirit, parents give their children into the care of trained nannies, doctors, and pedagogues. Hired personnel take over the role of mother in supervising the physical care and moral education of the child, and the mother is left with the one natural and inalienable right to give birth to the child. And I think this is an interesting point that she's making, that wealthy mothers have always given their children into the care of hired people, that that wealthy people socialize motherhood. It's only poor women who are the ones responsible for all of these aspects. And Kalantai herself was raised by a governess, so she knows this from her own childhood. Okay, back to Kalantai. The Labor Republic does not take children away from their mothers by force. As the bourgeois countries have made out in tales about the horrors of the Bolshevik regime. On the contrary, the Labor Republic tries to create institutions which would give all women, and not just the rich, the opportunity to have their children brought up in a healthy, joyful atmosphere. Instead of the mother anxiously thrusting her child into the care of a hired nanny, Soviet Russia wants the working or peasant woman to be able to go to work calm in the knowledge that her child is in the expert hands of a creche, a kindergarten, or a children's home. In order to protect women as the reproducer of the human race, the Labor Republic has created maternity homes and has tried to open them wherever they are particularly needed. In 1921, we had 135 such homes. These homes not only provide a refuge for the single woman in the most serious period of her life, but allow the married woman to get away from the home and family and the petty cares of the domestic round and to devote all of her attention to regaining strength after the birth and to looking after her child in the first most important weeks. Later on, the mother is not essential to the child, but in the first weeks, there is still, as it were, a physiological tie between mother and child, and during this period, the separation of mother and child is not advisable. You know yourselves, comrades, how willingly working women and even the wives of important functionaries take advantage of the maternity homes, where they find loving attention and peace. We do not have to use agitational methods to persuade women to use the maternity homes. Our problem is that the material resources of Russia are so limited. We are poor, and this makes it difficult for us to extend our network to cover the entire area of labor Russia with such aid stations for working women and peasant women. There are, unfortunately, still no maternity homes at all in the rural regions, and in general, we have done least of all to help the peasant mothers. In fact, all we have done for them is to organize summer creches. This makes it easier for the peasant mother to work in the field without her baby suffering in any way. In the course of 1921, 689 such creches, providing for 32,180 children, were opened. For mothers working in factories and offices, creches have been set up at factories and institutions and also at the district and town level. 
I do not have to emphasize the great significance of these crushes for the mothers. The trouble is that we do not have enough of them, and we cannot satisfy even a tenth of the demand for such aid centers. The network of social education organizations which relieve mothers of the hard work involved in caring for children includes, apart from the creches and the children's homes, which cater for orphans and foundlings up to the age of three, kindergartens for three to seven-year-olds, children's hearths for children of school age, children's clubs, and finally children's house communes and children's work colonies. The social education also includes free meals for children of preschool and school age. And the introduction of these measures has helped us a great deal in the hard years of the Civil War and has saved many children of the proletariat from emaciation and death from starvation. The concern of the state for children is also manifest in the provision of free milk, special food rations for the young, and clothes and footwear for children in need. All of these projects are far from having been realized in full. In practice, we have only covered a narrow section of the population. However, we have so far failed to relieve the couple from all of the difficulties of bringing up children, not because we have taken the wrong course, but because our poverty prevents us from fulfilling all that Soviet power has planned. The general direction of the policy on maternity is correct, but our lack of resources hinders us. So far, experiments have only been carried out at a fairly modest level. Even so, they have given results and have revolutionized the family life, introducing fundamental changes in the relationships between the sexes. This is a question we will discuss in the following talk. So I think I'm going to go ahead and stop right here. There's a last really juicy bit of this essay. I think it's really important, but we're getting close to 20 minutes and I do try to keep these episodes short. My daughter will be doing a special bonus episode with me. Hi. Uh, soon on AK-47, we will be hearing a special tea episode from uh, yours truly and Kristen Godsey <laughs> having a conversation the likes of which you have never before heard on this fantastic podcast. Wow. Okay. That's a pretty high bar. So uh, anyway, we'll see how that works out. Thank you for listening and keep up the good fight.